Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Climate Briefing, a podcast from Chatham House focusing on international climate politics and the UN climate negotiations. My name is Anne Oberg. I work in the Environment and Society program here at Chatham House, and I co-host this podcast together with Anthony Froggett. We're recording this episode just a few days before the UN's next climate change conference, COP27, which will take place in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. Very exciting, but also a bit nerve-wracking. COP27 is obviously the focus of this episode, and I am absolutely delighted to be joined by my colleague Bernice Lee, who is Research Director for Futures, Hoffman Distinguished Fellow for Sustainability, and Chair of the Sustainability Accelerator Advisory Board here at Chatham House. And of course, a friend of the podcast. In fact, almost a year ago, I interviewed Bernice about what we could expect from COP26 taking place in Glasgow, what a good outcome might look like at that conference and what some of the main challenges were. And we thought we'd do a bit of the same thing here today, but focusing on COP27. Bernice, it's such a pleasure to interview you again. Thanks for taking the time. Hello. So we left Glasgow almost a year ago with kind of a decent outcome. Could have been more ambitious, but it was still better than many would have expected. Looking at the year that has passed, what progress, if any, would you say has been made on the climate change agenda? Well, Anna, this is an excellent question because I think that this has been a very difficult year on many different fronts. If you look at the year we've had coming out of the pandemic, Russian invasion of the Ukraine, the year of extreme climate impacts, we have heat wave in Europe, heat wave in in fact many parts of the world, China, obviously huge floods in Pakistan affecting 30 million people, incurring billions of losses, Hurricane Ian in the US, etc., etc., So in many respects, given the youth we've had, which means that leaders are distracted and there are many, many things of extreme importance, you know, competing at the top table, in many respects, we have not had a very bad year, despite the fact that, you know, leaders are distracted and many things happen. And what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that if you ultimately look at some of the numbers of real economy investments in the world, despite the year we've had 2021, for example, recorded, I think it's 85% of capacity investments, additional capacity investments in the energy sector is in clean energy, compared to 15% of fossil energy. And that is good news indeed, that despite all the blips and slips that we hear, because it's not surprising that in many parts of the world, people who would like to use energy security as a reason to promote their own favorite sources of energy, many of which could be fossil energy, others may be renewable, are using energy security as a reason to do so. So despite the pushback in many parts of the world, I think that the clean energy and climate action agenda has demonstrated incredible resilience, both in terms of politics and economics in different parts of the world. Great. Thank you very much. What impact has Russia's war in Ukraine had on the energy transition and climate diplomacy more broadly? I think that it obviously has been challenging because it means that those who are interested in prolonging investments and deployment of fossil energy are now pointing to the war as a reason why we should be doing that. And this, we see this dynamic plays out in many different parts of the world. Having said that, it is also quite important to remind ourselves that the clean energy agenda, because of the fact that it is eight, nine times cheaper than fossil energy, is showing incredible resilience in terms of political and economic resilience in different parts of the world. And so on the one hand, 
of course it makes it it means that there are important you know there are there are important pushbacks from different parts of the world and as i called it earlier on blips and slips but at the same time despite the blips and slips it is also showing that in many parts of the world as well that there is an increasing realization that you know why wouldn't you go for renewables when it is cleaner cheaper and safer Turning to COP27 then, what are your expectations for this conference and what do you see as the main challenges? Well, I mean, in the first week of the COP, leaders will again show up, so there'll be some glitzy announcements, we expect. Now, what type of glitzy announcement at this point is a bit harder to note. Obviously, from COP26, the UK you know, has asked governments to come back and basically look at the 2030 target. And at the moment, I think 24 countries have done so, so far. So the hope is that more of them will be announced during COP, you know, the first week in COP27. Of course, there's the question of money which is often, you know, I mean, really, there's no other way to describe it. It's an open wound in many respects that could be poked and scab-picking of, of the climate negotiations. And the hope is that there'll be an announcement that we are well on track in the first week as well for meeting the target, which is at the moment still falling short of the 100 billion expected a year for delivery. Now, in addition, it is often said that COP27 is going to be an implementation COP as well as a loss and damage COP. When it comes to implementation, we talked about sort of hopefully more ambitious, uh, you know, more announcements of revised targets or submission resubmission of their targets for 2030. There's also money-related ones, but also implementation. What it really means is that in addition to SACA setting, is about figuring out how to deliver it, who's responsible for it, and whether or not there are systems of governance around it. So the expectation is that there will be more focus on that as well in COP27 around the how part of implementation. Now, when it comes to loss and damage, this was unfinished business, that there was a process for negotiation, but that it fell short in COP26 of the so-called financing facility. So the hope is that in COP27, progress will be made on this front, but also this means that there will be announcements, hopefully, probably not in the first week, but hopefully by the end, uh, some form of finance-related mechanism and facility that could be a, a takeaway from COP27 going forward as well. Now, there are obviously many sexual announcements back at COP26, and I understand that there'll be more coming this year as well. Uh, on forest, for example, which was a big deal last year, where there were you know finance packages from indigenous people to supply chains, etc., on deforestation-free related supply chains. And so this year, the expectation is that there'll be more in terms of climate forest leader, especially as regards Africa as well. Now, in different sectors, there was a, a methane announcement last year. So more countries may come forward. There will be eyes on whether or not, for example, China will come forward with an announcement right now. I mean, there are rumors swelling around. I don't know whether they will or not. Uh, but at the same time, this is a possibility as well. Great. Thank you very much. There's a lot there in your answer. I also wanted to ask about adaptation. COP27 is being framed as an African COP, and there's the expectation is that there will be quite a lot of focus on adaptation. What's going to happen in Sharm related adaptation? Well, I mean, as you know, there's a negotiation on the global goal on adaptation, which is still ongoing. And I think we don't quite know how the final shape will look like just yet. But what is also important to remind ourselves is that there was also a call for doubling of adaptation finance as well. So the expectation is that in COP27, there'll be lots of leaders, hopefully, coming forward in the leader summit saying that they will be doubling and adding onto the adaptation related 
financing as well. So I think that would be the main one. I mean, look at the moment, looks like quite a lot of European leader, the US leader will turn up. So it looks like, you know, I, I don't know whether any of them are confirmed, but nonetheless, I mean, these things, I mean, you know, who knows till the, you know, last minute, but certainly the expectation is that there'll be a fair number of, you know, leaders from major economies showing up as well from G7, especially. I wanted to return a bit to the geopolitics that we were speaking about at the start. At COP26, we saw the US and China come together and agree a bilateral pact focused on scaling up ambition in the 2020s. They're, of course, the two largest emitters in, in the world. However, this summer, we saw China temp- well suspend cooperation on climate change, among other things, with the US following Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. How much does this matter and how may it impact the negotiations in Sharm el-Sheikh? I think that the announcement last year took a lot of people, including myself, by surprise. At the same time, it is obviously the case that it wasn't the only deal maker, even though it was an important part of the atmosphere. It was a positive atmosphere. So obviously it is important that the two of them keep working together in one form or another, even though right now there's no working relationship between China and the U.S., So if just as they're working together last year couldn't harm, they're not working together this year indeed could be problematic. So that it is incumbent on these two major economies, two largest countries and major emitters to make sure that their strife would not deteriorate into open fire in COP27 context. Now, I don't see any reason yet Since the commitment that were made by, for example, presidency of China on the 2030, peaking by 2030, before 2030, and carbon neutrality by 2060 is one that he committed to, there is any reason for China not wanting the process to go as well as others. Since the U.S. has passed the Inflation Reduction Act, again, with a strong climate bent to the whole package, there is also no reason for the U.S. not wanting this to be a successful COP so that we are on track. So the, the 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 sort of positive spin on this is that because both powers have committed to strong climate action already, this means that they have a re- good reason to make sure that it continues to go forward in a positive way. Meanwhile, what is interesting is the fact that vulnerable economies are going to be setting the pace, and they're not only the moral heartbeat, but also setting the pace and the general tenet of the COP27, really. Because in terms of loss and damage, they're working with China and India to make sure that it's an ambitious outcome. Whereas on the side of mitigation in 1.5, they're working with US and the EU to make sure that there is a high ambition outcome in terms of mitigation. So in many respects, the vulnerable economies are going to be the ones setting the pace and the moral heartbeat for the negotiations in COP27 as well. And the hope is that With that, the moral heartbeat at the core of setting the pace in some ways, that the geopolitical strife will find a way not to be a bilateral issue, but really become a sort of more triangular play, which hopefully will mean that we will bring some sense and sensibility, but also ambition on different fronts, both in terms of adaptation as well as as mitigation as well into the discussion at COP27. Thanks, Benice. I only have one last question, then I'll let you go. COP27 is taking place now in November, but looking beyond that, 
What do you think is needed to accelerate climate action and ambition in this critical decade? Okay, so what we what we need to what need to happen to help close the gap I mean, is a bit boring thing to say, which is that we need more of the same but better and more ambitious. It also means that we've got to start listening very closely to the needs of developing countries as well. I think the Prime Minister Barbados, Mia Motley, have outlined a very exciting Bridgetown agenda, which is a strong reminder for all of us that obviously development and climate climate action could be part and parcel, could be the two sides of the same coin. And this means that we have to make sure that we are looking at the two questions, development and climate action, in an integrated manner. It's also a good reminder that basically there are no shortcuts. We need to do everything right. And in fact, we have that reminder already when it comes to energy security, that we need to make sure that things and energy that we put in place is energy secure, but at the same time has to be cheap enough, has to be clean enough, has to be safe enough at the same time. So I think that moving forward, it is quite clear that we need to make sure that we do things once because you know what we don't really have a lot of time as we as the climate scientists keep reminding us we also don't have a lot of money because of all the challenges we face in the world which means that we need to make sure that the money we have it goes a long way and makes them make, make sure that they're meeting multiple needs at the same time so i think that this is really the lesson from both cop26 and looking forward to cop27 into the future that we must make sure that we're delivering on all the needs in the world the human needs and in, 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 in tandem with climate needs, because otherwise we simply won't be moving fast enough to tackle all the questions. Now, there are there are people who would like to think that there are silver bullets in technologies, and there may be some, and if we are going to tap into the silver bullets, what is quite clear is that the last generation of cost reduction in renewable energy suggested that speed, cost, scale, sustainability happen when we work together than when we go into bifurcation of the global economy. So the big question for the future would be, can we do decarbonization in a bifurcated global economy? And if that is the case, how else can we make sure that we can reach the kind of cost reduction and scale and sustainability requirement that we would need? But perhaps last but certainly not least, if we're talking about making sure that everything is in place, we must not forget about nature. Because right after COP27 comes the COP around biodiversity in Montreal, COP15. And this is a good reminder that it isn't just about energy, it is also about nature, it's about food systems transformation. And in fact, COP27 will be one where obviously food system crisis will be front and center on the basis of where we are today in terms of food shortages and food price crisis. And it's a strong reminder that solutions don't come piecemeal. We have to make sure that even the solutions may look like they come piecemeal, actually there's part of an integrated whole. And then we need to look at the larger systems level dynamics between not just energy, but also food and nature as well. Excellent. Thank you very much, Bernice. Thanks, everyone. That's it for today. We'll be back soon with another episode. Please do feel free to check out previous episodes, which can be found on Lipsim, Spotify, and all other major podcast outlets. Thanks very much. Thank you.